In this episode, Andy Tully and Paul Spate from Canada Life and I talk about the iniquities of the pension tax system, the lifetime allowance, the annual allowance, and what possible scope there might be for reform. We talk about the state pension and we talk a bit about retirement guidance and advice and what might come next. I hope you enjoy the show. I think we should we should probably start just with with introductions. But we'll go in alphabetical order. Andrew, Andrew Tully, just remind me what is your job title and how would you describe what you do there? I am technical director at Canada Life. Uh, I run a team of experts across pensions, estate planning, tax, trusts, and these guys work with advisors and mostly. Uh, so I've been doing events, doing case consulting, answering complex questions and helping hopefully understand and, and assist them with the difficulties we face in, in the complex financial world. Full-time job. Thank you. And, and Paul? Hi. So I look after our key account development, which, which broadly means that uh, you take the, the product suite that Canada Life offers into the advisory market, so it's all advisor-based sales, and we look to build long-term relationships, which is a very grand way of saying that we, we like working with, with advisors and we want to support their businesses and their clients. Obviously, Andrew's team is, is very integral to what we offer into the advisory market, and um, I probably speak as a sort of business angle rather than the purely technical an- angle that, that Andrew would come from. Brilliant. Thank you. That's kind, of, that's kind of formalities out of the way. So there's a couple of things I think are worth touching on today. I, I'd like to start with that perennial favourite of pension taxation. And we could, we could spend the rest of the day talking about all the things that are wrong with the pension tax rules. So let's just try and avoid that because it's not good for anybody. I, I came across this guy the other day who does five-hour history podcasts it's like, are you mad? But he's really interesting. He was being interviewed on someone else's podcast and he just he just gets really into his subject and just goes on and on. I think he researches it pretty heavily, but that's a bit mad, isn't it? I thought Joe Rogan's at three hours were a bit extreme. I reckon if we put our minds to it, we could do a five-hour podcast on pension taxation, but no one would listen. Right, so <laughs> um, can we start? And Andy, you've waxed lyrical about all the ways you dislike the lifetime allowance. So I'm just going to kind of t- throw that out there, step back and, and let you go. Uh, yes, that's probably a, a fair comment, particularly on, on DC. I think if we're talking about defined benefit, then I think lifetime allowance has a place and... and uh, that, that is probably a good measure of a DB scheme income. For, from a DC point of view, I, I don't think it's an appropriate measure. Uh, certainly having two different measures, having annual allowance on the way in, lifetime allowance on the way out, seems overkill. So, and I think from a DC perspective, having an annual allowance, and, and whatever that is, and we can debate whether that's 40 or, or a different amount, but having that, it feels there's no need also for a lifetime allowance. So, so I guess that, that's my basic starting point. We've also again come into, you know, a significant change over the last 10 years. So if we go back just about 10 years from now, a lifetime allowance was, was 1.8 million. And, and, you know, probably no one would be having this conversation because it was it was fairly irrelevant, wasn't it? It was a tax take from government was a rounding error. It was something we didn't come across much. And, and then the government cut it once and, and saw that no one really noticed. So so could cut it again and again. And 
Uh, and we got down to a million. We've now got it frozen through to 2026. And, and again, if we think about 1.8 million back in 2012, if we took, you know, if we took inflation into account, that's probably somewhere about 2.2 million in today's terms. So, so, so lifetime allowance today is significantly less than half of what it was in, in real terms 10 years ago. And that, that's enough. I mean, you know, if, if we were talking about the difference between 10 million and 5 million, 99.9% of the population would go, yeah, yeah, well, that still doesn't bother me. Right. So it's the fact that, and if we went from 100,000 down to 50,000, obviously it would affect everybody, but that would just be daft. But it's that within that threshold, that shift, you've just dragged a whole load more people into the equation, haven't you? Yes. And, and it's only going to go in one direction. So, so, so as we see the increasing shift away from DB across to DC, as we see auto enrollment building up ports, hopefully as we're getting decent investment returns within within DC ports as well, we're, we're going to see more and more people. So, you know, so if we look at tax, as I said, 2006, 2010, it was, it was irrelevant. Some figures we've done in predicting what it will be by 2026, the tax take will be one and a half billion pounds each year. And, and that's only going to increase. So you can see if we're getting one and a half billion pounds a year in tax, that's affecting a significant number of people to a reasonable degree. Uh, and you're right, you know, and again, a million pounds, it's always, you know, a million pounds, it sounds an amazing amount of money, and it, and it is an amazing amount of money, isn't it, to, to think about a million pounds. But if you take that over a 30-year retirement, you're starting to get into, you know, 30,000 pounds a year, 35,000 pounds a year. It doesn't feel, you know, it's certainly not footballer territory, is this? This is not, this is not outrageous amounts of money having an income of 30, 35, 40 grand a year is what lots of people would aspire to get. Well, if you look at the, the PLSA retirement income standards, 30 grand a year for a couple is the moderate income. It's not even the comfortable income, it's just moderate. Absolutely. And I know you've got yeah. other stuff like state pensions and so on, which sit out with the, the lifetime allowance. But still, yeah, as you say, we're not talking, we're not talking premiership footballer territory here. I, I think it's been an interesting journey that the Treasury's gone on from, from where we were in 2006, when, as, as you said, it was just effectively a fairly abstract concept. It was so high, even at 1.5 million, to be almost irrelevant. And then it went up to 1.8, and then we hit the coalition and austerity, and we dropped and dropped and dropped. And through that process, and particularly with the sort of salami slicing that went on, and by the way, I'd like to come on to the protection stuff as well, because that kind of irks me a bit. Through that process, no one ever stopped and questioned this kind of fairly fundamental philosophical shift that was going on. And when we had an annual allowance of a quarter of a million pounds a year, it obviously made sense to have a lifetime allowance limit as well, because you had to put a cap on those huge sums of money that would go in. Once you get to £40,000 a year, things have changed, but at no point really has the Treasury come back to the industry and the world at large and said, Does this, is this okay? Is, 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 could we do this a better way? And I think, I think that's, it would be really good to start with that conversation, wouldn't it? I think it would, yeah. So, so, so there's, there's a bunch of things to pull out, I guess, from what you said. Simplification is, is a clear one, you know. The, the realms of paper that's written about lifetime allowance, even to individuals who've got really, really small pots, they still get, you know, bits of paper about how much lifetime allowance they've used and so on. So, so absolutely, simplification is a big one. There's also a big unfair, you know, fairness principle. Uh, the lifetime allowance, to me, is intrinsically unfair. 
from a DC perspective, you know, we could each put in the same amount of money into a pension. One of us gets good investment growth, one of us doesn't. And, and the person who's got a strong investment performance pays tax on that. And and that doesn't seem to meet the original policy intent of what the lifetime allowance was. And, and I accept things have changed over the years, but the original policy intent was all about limiting the cost of tax relief to government. Yet the outcome is you and I have effectively cost the government the same amount of money, but one of us is paying a big tax bill and one isn't. Now there's a different argument now that one of us is much better off than the other as well. So, but but it, it doesn't seem particularly fair, and and that's before we even go on to the you know the fundamental mismatch that we have between DB and DC, which which is massively unfair so yeah and and i I want to come on to that dbdc disparity but uh, paul just from a kind of distribution point of view do you have a perspective in terms of how this impacts on sort of advisor relationships and and how they manage their clients investments well it it impacts it in in several different ways so as andrew says you know it's nice and simple if you've got one pension plan that you know you're looking after or more likely your advisor's looking after and you're looking at whether you can get to the you know the million pounds is that an aspirational uh, target for you but the reality is you're likely to hit your retirement a in stages and b with pots in db dc probably a number of different schemes and it's not just that one point in time so for those that haven't got an advisor watching over them, I, I you know, genuinely find it you know, really hard to understand how uh, you know, a member of the public, even with a good grasp of kind of financial services and, and pensions, actually navigates not just the one test that they have, but the multiple tests that they're probably going to have on their pension benefits, not least of which the, the, the one that they get at age 75, which you know, seems like a you know, you've gone, you've navigated your way through, you've worked out your retirement income, and then someone comes along and says, actually, what I need you to do is go and find all those pieces of paper that you've had over the years. And then we've got to work out actually what your benefits are now based on, not the fund, you know, and you, you can sense how without an advisor, that would be so difficult for individuals to navigate. And, and actually, even for advisors, you know, the support that they need trying to gather the information for, for people who, frankly, probably don't really need that level of, you know, and potentially a tax bill coming their way at age 75 seems seems wholly unfair. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And that's before you throw into the mix the headache of trying to work out. And originally we had primary and enhanced protection. And that wasn't that wasn't pretty, but it kind of made some sense. And then you get three iterations of fixed protection, I think, plus a couple more individual protections. And, you know, it's just... Yeah. For an individual to navigate that maze and to understand how it affects them and what decisions they should take, I mean, it's unreasonable to expect someone to do that without the assistance of a financial advisor, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is key advisor territory. This is where advisors can absolutely show and demonstrate the worth that they are bringing to, to a client is... Uh, and to go back to, to Paul's bit is, you know, people might target this, but, you know, actually breaching the lifetime allowance and keeping paying in and paying a, a tax charge might very well be a client's best interest. But that might not be where a client comes from. A client might go, oh, I don't want to pay tax. You know, I don't, I, you know that tax is bad. Don't want to pay tax. But actually, it, it can be a really good outcome or it can, it can be the best outcome. Particularly if you're getting individual. an employer contribution, right? There's still Absolutely, free money. Absolutely, yes. So, so one, so somebody I, I know, 
spoke to me recently, and, and he's a doctor, so so some might not be high, but he's you know he's getting a very nice. General <laughs> Hang on, package. Andy, I've got to interrupt <laughs> you there. How do we arrive at a point where you can say a thing like that? Where <laughs> we're looking at doctors and going, oh yeah, bastards, you know, yeah, <laughs> well paid. But, but yeah, so, so he's well paid. He's got a nice generous pension scheme, isn't he? So, but but his point of view was, you know, um, and, and he's, he's he's about my age, and he's going. You know, there's no point in me staying in this pension scheme because I'm going to I'm going to have this lifetime allowance. So, so I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to leave this pension scheme. Now, obviously, we've got we've got this issue about advice, but you know, it's just a clear message to my point is you know this is probably not the right thing for you to do. Stay in this pension scheme. Your employer's paying a massive contribution for you. Most of what you and, and it, it's you know in simple terms it's better getting fifty five percent of something than nothing at all, but that's not necessarily where people are coming from. Without advice, people are going tax. Tax is bad. Don't want to pay tax, and I'll do what I need to do to avoid this tax. And and that's that can be the difficult kind of unforeseen consequences of things like that. And I guess guess from an employer's point of view, I mean, okay, we're talking about an individual in a, in a defined benefit pension, but it's a contributory defined benefit pension, so he's got to pay to get that employer contribution. Yes. You know, you could go down the road of saying, well, you know, we've got a DB scheme, you know, lucky people, or even a DC scheme, but, you know, we could come to an accommodation with people who bump up against the lifetime allowance. You know, maybe we'll, we'll, maybe we'll just do a, a non-contributory DC arrangement for some of these people so they're at least getting some free money without having to pay a penalty in terms of their own contributions. You know, you, could do, you can do things like that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, they, they kind of tweaked the tape and annual allowance, so you now got to work going over 240000 to to see the reduction in your annual allowance. But... So, so again, it's it's taken out of the equation for most people. Yeah. But there almost comes a point again. There's so much talked about it, and material having to be written about it, and all that kind of thing. So, so, so it does get to the point of is there a point still having it at, at that kind of level? You know, the, the fact that we've got three different annual allowances again just brings complexity and means that people might be unintentionally caught by it because they won't understand the differences between when these three different rules may apply. Particularly with the money purchase annual allowance where we've seen lots of people dipping into their pensions in their late 50s and you know they might do that with the intention of quitting the workforce forever but Times change, circumstances change, inflation goes up. All of a sudden, people need to start saving again. Uh, no, you can't. Sorry, you're capped at four and, grand and, a year now. Yeah, and 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 to be honest, this this is really what pension freedom was all about, wasn't it? As people could dip into their pension when they needed to do so, and and we can argue about you know when people need to do so, but you know things like maybe if you are made redundant through COVID or. or you're followed or as you say cost of living suddenly has a dramatic impact on your family those are the kind of situations that pension freedom is fantastic because you have that ability to dip into your pension take a little bit out and then go you're hopefully a couple of years later going actually you know things have gone back to normal now I either get a new job or, or I go back to, to being able to afford to save in my pension so doing the right thing you know and, and, and doing the right thing 50 grand salary, you pay in 5%, your employer pays in 5%, and hey presto, suddenly you breached the, the money purchase on your loans and paying tax. And that just seems completely unreasonable. You know, again, this is not something that's affecting 
hugely wealthy people. This is this is this is Middle uh, England, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good, 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 good way of describing it. Yeah, Middle <laughs> England, you're, you're getting affected by this kind of stuff, and and it just you know if we go back to what are we trying to you know encourage people to save? It, it just seems no logic in it when when you kind of step back and look at it and. And it's easy for us in, in the industry, we can kind of get caught up in the, you know, should this be this figure or that figure or whatever. But when you step back a bit and look at it, you know, from someone outside the industry, it just makes no sense to say, we want you to save, we want you to save, we want to save, or you're saving, we're going to penalise you. So, you know. Yeah, and, and it's a far cry from all those rules that we swept away in 2006. Mm. And, and I say we're not going to do the four-hour history podcast here of pension legislation. But over time, you know, the principle of you having one pot, you know, one and a half million, that's what you can save towards the kind of tax allowances that meant that pretty much everybody in the UK could put in as much as they wanted without fear or favour to this point where more and more people are being excluded from from pensions or you know actually what happens is they get in, they incur tax charges as they go along you know you're retired you're a high earner you're this you're that you've gone back to work that it, the list is getting quite is getting quite long and and again people just fall foul of it and your worry is is people have fallen foul of it without realizing and then at some point you know they get the uh, the nasty little brown envelope arrives on their doorstep saying did you realise you, you you should have been declaring this on your self-assessment return, which you've not been doing? Well, it's a good work creation scheme. Good work creation yeah. scheme for, for civil servants in HMRC, isn't it? It's going to mm. keep them busy policing all of this kind of stuff. But Andy, you also touched on the, the DBDC disparity. And I mean, it, and it, it is, it's just daft, not in two ways, not only that they have the same, essentially the same calculation basis for both, and they are profoundly different schemes, different types of proposition, but also the 20 to 1 calculation, you know, the way that the way they actually measure DB against the lifetime allowance massively favours DB relative to DC, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't think anyone would ever debate for a moment that 20 is an unreasonable factor. I think the government acknowledged that, you know, because if, if we look at the, the annual allowance factor, it was 10, they moved up to 16. That was that was a recognition that 10 was unreasonable. They moved up to 16. You know, if you were doing the same basis, then that would mean DB should have moved to, to you know, the lifetime allowance one should move to 32. And, and I'm not saying that would be right, but it would be a lot closer to being realistic than, than 20 as, as an argument. It should be even higher than 32. But, but some, you know, having it at 20 is effectively means you can probably get double out a DB scheme than you can out a DC scheme. So these rules were designed by civil servants in DB schemes. I'm sure there's maybe an element of self. Wouldn't possibly like to comment on that. (laughs) So, okay, look, we're all three of us here sitting here agreeing that the system's not very logical or fair. So I guess there's two questions from that. And and one's a really long question, one slightly shorter, but it's, you know, Okay, I mean, I almost hesitate to ask you this, but what would good look like? Uh, and then also, perhaps more immediately, what realistically can the industry do to get the government and the Treasury in particular back to the table and having a sensible conversation about what we could do to change all of this? So I think the, the simple one is probably the, the money purchase annual allowance. I think the simple move there is either to scrap it entirely or at the very least move it up to 10,000, which is what it used to be. Mm. Treasury, I've always had a worry that, that people would go, you know, look round and take tax relief out and put it back in a pension and so on and they could lose out of that. 
you know, so, so they might have a preference to have some sort of limit on it. If you move it up to 10 grand, then it, at least it takes that kind of 50 grand they end up paying in 10% out of, you know, out yeah. of the mix. So, that, you know, it would only be someone paying in a very substantial amount of money that, well, a reasonably substantial amount of money that would be caught by the, the money purchase on your allowance. So, so, so I think there's almost quite an easy solution to doing that, and that's just to, to stick it up to 10 grand. Lifetime allowance is, is probably, as you indicated at the beginning, is, is probably a much more fundamental conversation. And to, to me, what good would look like there is you effectively we'll probably go back to pre-2006 and have two different regimes. You have a DC regime, and DC is, is measured against annual allowance, and you have a DB regime, and DB is measured against lifetime allowance. And that would, at a stroke, make pensions much, much simpler. The only then kind of remaining wrinkle would be transfers from DB to DC, but you know we're, we're pretty much scrapped them. And uh, anyway, so so no that's not going to happen in future amount going forward. Yeah, yeah. So, no so, advice to be had there. So that's yeah. fine. Uh, and and the one aspect we we you know we is that seems to be off the table at the moment is that that much mooted kind of move to isocentric savings, which of course got lots and lots of airplay a few years ago. You know, is there a point that actually we've gone so far away from the original pension simplification ideal that we need to step back and you know, what does long term say, whether you call it a pension or an ISA, does anyone really does anyone really mind? And if you're going to have a fundamental reset, is it worth reopening up that that debate again? Yeah, well, I mean, and then we come back to the question of, well, OK, but is, is the Treasury actually, because I sense no willingness on their part to have that kind of conversation right now. And I'm really interested in what, because the whole industry agrees that this isn't effective, it isn't fair, it isn't, it isn't transparent, it isn't simple. But the Treasury's not listening. So, you know, what can we do to get them back to the table again? And I think Andy's suggestion, well, let's, let's go for some, some easier wins. <laughs> let's kind of chip away at it a bit, you know, whether it's the money purchase annual allowance or whatever. But that more fundamental kind of, okay, yeah, it's broken. Let's get it all back on the table like we did in, in sort of 2015-16, produce the lifetime ISA. That's more challenging, isn't it? There doesn't seem much appetite for that. And I think particularly in today's economic climate, you know, if, if my prediction is at one and a half billion a year by 2026 from lifetime loans, you know, that, that suddenly becomes a lot of money to, to, to be giving up effectively at this moment in time when, when there's so much pressure on the economy. So it's probably particularly at this moment in time quite a difficult conversation to have. Yeah, the good news is asset prices keep falling, so so maybe it won't be so much of a big problem. So there is that. So yeah, but hopefully they'll go back up again. Okay, I'd really like on, answers on a postcard. I think to that one, please. What what does what does the industry need to do to persuade the treasury to sort of come back to the table on pension reform, pension tax reform? Because we all agree it needs doing, and we all recognise that there's not much, there's fairly limited political capital at the moment but it you know every year that goes by some of the stuff you paul have talked about here and andy it's you know, people's lives are not made better by these rules <laughs> just just horrible right absolutely not so andy we had a bit of a chat a week or so ago about state pension review and state pension age and i was really intrigued by your comments of why not allow people to take it a bit earlier and i, I you know talk to me a bit about that again yeah, to, to be honest, it's not. It's probably not my idea. I have to, to, to be honest, of of allowing people to take it early, and and 
probably on balance, I'm, I wouldn't be in favour of allowing people to take it early. But it, it is a debate that's taking place at this moment in time about the kind of ongoing increases to state pension age. We know that the state pension age review is, is kind of taking place at the moment about future increases. So we know we're, we're going to go up to 67 in, in only a few years' time. Uh, and the debate now is is potential when we're going to go up to 68 and and potentially beyond that. So, so, so I think that has given rise to should people have the flexibility to take state pension early? And I think what, when that gets raised, I think, you know, it sounds great, doesn't it? Flexibility always sounds good. I think I always, I, I have concerns or I have worries about allowing people to take state pension early because as soon as you do things like that, there's going to be winners and losers that appear. And people with advisors will will probably fall into the winners category. And, and that, again, is an indication that advisors will do a great job and they'll help people work through the best choices for their particular individual situation. The people who don't have advisors and maybe can't afford to pay advisors uh, will then face what will be an incredibly complicated decision about when to take benefits. And, And what Pension Freedoms has probably shown us is that in the absence of that kind of knowledge and awareness, they will probably just default to taking the money as early as possible. And that may not be the right situation for them. So, you know, so if we think about someone who's, a middle earner, and if they stopped working at 66 and they got a nine and a half grand state pension and they got a couple of grand from private pension, all of that would fall within the personal allowance, so they'd end up paying no income tax at all. If you took that state pension a few years early, while you're still working, you'll end up paying 20% income tax on all your state pension. So, so even doing that for a few years, that means that as an individual, they're paying significantly more income tax and that's before we even think about national insurance and stuff but uh, and that probably means that you know as soon as they get up to and, and break even ages are always a little bit tricky because it depends what assumptions you make but but probably as soon as they get to 78 or, or maybe even earlier once you factor in national insurance they're going to be worse off in in that kind of situation but we kind of certainty of money now might might provoke people to take it early so i think it just becomes a really really difficult decision to give people who who don't have access to advice yeah and, and you know and i'll just add to that that you know we see this playing out in you know in the annuity markets or, or should we say you know when people get their their wake-up packs you know a, a comment you often hear is that, you know, why, why did you do that? Well, I did it because I felt I had to or I was going to, to miss out. And, and the level of financial education that the government would have to do with people getting a, you know, let's say a pack through saying, you can now take your pension early. The number of people that are likely to tick yes for fear that if they tick no, they, they're somehow missing out. You know, that's, that's the danger, isn't it, Andrew? You're going to have lots of people who, who then regret the decision they've made because they, they, they just weren't empowered to make the right decision at the right time. Yeah, and then we run into all sorts of other complications around pension credits and things like that. And pension credits are difficult enough. Again, enormously complex subject. You know, there's vast numbers of people in the UK who don't claim benefits, which they are probably entitled to get. And that's because the system is very complex. Uh, and if we added in you know, another complexity of when did you take your state pension, did you take it early, and what kind of impact that's going to have on pension credit. 
I'm not convinced that it will help people, particularly in, in the kind of lower earnings bracket. Yeah, on that pension credit thing, I mean, Henry Tapper's been sort of making noises about that and trying to raise some publicity around that. And Guy Opperman's, I know, I mean, like he, he, was, he was saying recently he's written to every local newspaper in the land. They've got ads in job centres and doctors' waiting rooms. You know, they're really trying to, they, they literally can't give the money away. Like, um, Sorry, Tom. Yeah, I, no, I was just saying, it, yes, I, I get the sentiment, but, but equally we are asking people to fill in, you know, 42-page forms yes. to get it. So I get the, con, you know, the, the, the advertising, but again, we need to make it easier for people. Well, and I thought that was interesting about what Guy was saying, that you know, he wants to reform it. He wants to come up with a better answer. He's sort of doors open at the DWP. You know, if anyone can come up with a better way of doing this, you know, come and talk to me about this. I thought that was, well, that was really good. I mean, he talked about various other kind of consultation things that he's kind of getting doors open on. But I also know that, I mean, they've, they've got a lot of people at the DWP manually administering this stuff. I mean, they've probably got Amazon warehouse style sort of banks of people handling this stuff, trying to process manually all the kind of the, the claims and the eligibility and so on and trying to get the money out to people. It doesn't look like a good system. No, it's so, horrible. I mean, the state pension itself we know is horrible. You know, you know, trying to work out the second tier state pension is just pretty much impossible. You know, and, and uh, you know, personally, my, my dad died last year, and my mum inherited about his state pension. So, so DWP wrote to her and, and and she just handed it to me and said, "Is this right?" Hmm. Well, I'm kind of looking at her. What can you say to that? Because there is no simple way to work out the amount that they've given her to work out whether it is correct, you know. And and you can maybe take a ballpark, does it feel reasonable? Mm. But working it out to a penny is is pretty much impossible. Start throwing contracted uh, deductions into the mix. Exactly. And, and, and for someone, you know, who's worked in the industry so long to, to kind of say it's almost impossible to work out, it's not great, is it, you know, tough things. So... so and we have simplified that, so it was, you know, so yeah. So credit to Steve Webb for what he did. Single tier state pension, absolutely. But but again, because we've kind of got this starting point of if you ever paid national insurance before twenty sixteen, we kind of work out the best of the old system and the new system at twenty sixteen, and then you get the new system after twenty sixteen. All that means is is we're going to run at least some level of complexity for a generation because. You know, until we've got people who not worked at all before 2016, we've still got this overhang to, to the old system. Yeah, and that's going to take a while, isn't it? And they've got better. You know, at least you can at least you can go onto a government website now and plug in some details, and it will tell you here's our calculation of what your state pension entitlement. Absolutely, so, and, yeah. and it still is, is something that not enough people do is is go on to the state forecast and and get a state forecast and and work out how much they're going to get, but but also importantly to think about you know are, are there missing years are there, you know are there credits are entitled to that we hadn't claimed for you know maybe when they're looking after kids and yeah. And, and that's probably increased recently because we've had things like child benefit. Uh, and Paul probably falls into this as well. You know, pe- people haven't claimed child benefit because they were earning over 60 grand. But what that means is that potentially 
for for a, you know a stay at home mum or or I guess stay at home dad, but they've not got qualifying years which they were entitled to do so because they just they had to go and claim them. Yeah. claiming, yeah, yeah. there was no point claiming it and then paying it back in many people's eyes. But not claiming it meant they didn't get a qualifying year for state pension purposes. And I know we had that discussion at some point, Paul. Yes, yes. Thank you for so painfully reminding me of my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the interesting thing, isn't it, with the, with the state pen, with all the pension dashboard, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? Maybe we should go and propose this to DWP that rather than just surfacing figures on a, on a pensions dashboard, it actually offers you options of what you could do and how that would enhance your retirement benefits. Well, possibly, yeah. yeah, they're very clear. We start with with just putting a flat screen of information up in front of you and any kind of interactive functionality is definitely in the phase two bucket. And, I, you know, again, sort of Guy is looking sternly across at the pensions industry and sort of muttering about getting data cleansing done and making sure you've got your house in order ready for phase one. And meanwhile, the whole industry is going, oh, any, any, any wriggle room to be had here? Um, so looking, looking slightly nervous about those, some of those deadlines. So I think... I think that kind of interactivity you're talking about is probably a little way down the line yet. So, and I guess uh, the other thing for, for state pension is, is that we're looking at a big increase for next year. So, so I guess a, posit- a positivity, yeah. assuming it doesn't, doesn't change the goalposts, is you know, potentially we're looking at a 10% increase for next year. Yeah. That if, if that happened, that would take state pension above £200 a week. So that's quite a significant threshold, which it would, which it would break through next year if, if that happens. And, unless Rishi Sunak decides he's already lost so much goodwill with the public, he can get away with cutting it again because, you know, <laughs> once, once, yes. once you've got so far down, there's nowhere left to go, right? So, so I, I, I don't think they will. I think, I think the government will probably... I think it would be a, a, a significant <laughs> challenge for them to, to try and uh, but, get I mean, out of it again. The, the other thing with the state pension age review is, you know, we periodically hear a talk about, well, maybe we should come up with a sort of slightly underwritten kind of approach or postcode based or, you know, some kind of variable metric to reflect people's life expectancy. And, you know, there is that fairness argument that if you've got poor life expectancy, um, you lose out from the state pension and then all the kind of rich people in Dorset or wherever, uh, just to tenaciously live forever, they do much better out of the system. And so could we not reflect that in some way? But I'm just reflecting on the kind of what you guys were just talking about with the existing complexity. And really, we don't want any more complexity, right? Yeah, I, I think that, that kind of stuff just feels a step too far, you know, to, to try and get people to plan what the state pension is going to be and have that huge uncertainty over what it is actually going to be. And I know people have gone through that process, you know, particularly many women have gone through that process over the last 15 years of not knowing exactly what they're going to get or when they're going to get it. And that, I don't think that helps people plan for their, for their retirement or plan their private savings. So I, I absolutely get the fairness argument, but I think we, we need to try and keep it as simple as we can. Okay, so I mean that kind of sort of neatly leads on to the other thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about, which was just how we can move forward with better guidance for people at the point of retirement. Perennial debate, you know, we look at maps, we look at pension wise, we look at the, the financial advisor community who are doing very nicely for themselves, advising around sort of seven eight percent of the population and doing a pretty decent job there. And then there's the 92, 93% of the population who are largely missing out on the hand-holding that many of them so, so painfully need. 
as they move through their 50s and 60s to help them manage that pot. And of course, it's not a once and done interaction. You know, people need to make decisions again and again through that period of their lives and into their 70s and 80s. And uh, we've got the, we had the Queen's speech, we've got a financial services bill coming. There might be some movement there around sort of regulatory boundaries. We're outside Europe now, we can tear up MIFID and throw it out and start again if we want. So, you know, there are potentially some opportunities there, but I'd be really interested in your thoughts from, from either of you on just, you know, how we can move forward from here. Is robo-advice going to ride to the rescue? Where, where, where do we go from here? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? So, I mean, certainly kind of, you know, the COVID effect had quite a fundamental change on a, the way a number of advisors operated, not all, but, but the majority, I suspect, where pre-COVID, lots of firms were kind of settling on face-to-face advice meant you had to have a you know an amount to invest of of x probably certainly north of 250,000 probably more and most advisors would settle on having maybe 200 200 clients that they could actively look after of course now with you know video technology and you know what we've had to do through covid i would assume that number has has, has increased quite significantly whether it's led and your point about advisors are doing quite nicely thank you whether it's led to them pointing some of their teams at clients with with less assets to invest i'm not sure that has happened i think they've just taken on more people with with more money is robo gonna ride to the rescue well it's difficult isn't it so i mean the robo systems we tend to see that have been quite successful aren't really about robo advice so you end up, if you want to do proper advice on a robo, you've probably got to reflect what the advice system looks like if you're doing it face-to-face. You know, if that's an hour's worth of keying data into a machine, I'm just not convinced many people are going to sit through that journey. So do you come back to guidance? Is guidance the answer? We've seen the success of, you know, some of the new entrants to the marketplace with lots of advertising and some, you know, rather, you know, snazzy messaging, have actually made a big move in the pensions market. Is guidance the answer? It, it probably is with where we are at the moment for that segment of the market. The danger is how you fund it. Because people won't pay for it. So you have to take it out of assets under management? Well, I mean, those have been the models that are by and large being, being used. The guidance delivers you in a solution that has paid for the guidance, if that, make, if that makes sense. Whereas... The advice, you know, if you had a piece of advice kit, you're going to enter it to, you know, and pay a fee for having that advice. And at the end of it, you might be offered a range of solutions, but it probably isn't a packaged up solution that's paying for the advice journey. Mm. The question is, is what what are people prepared to pay? And certainly the, you know, the solutions that have been on the market, you know, £150 has been too much. Yeah, I yeah, think I that, remember some research yeah. suggesting the, the average amount people were prepared to pay was something like £48. Yeah. <laughs> Even on a non-advised guided basis, you're not going to get much of a service for that kind of price, are you? And You're not going to build a business model around that, are you? Yeah. And I guess particularly at that kind of cost is, is what, what's the value going to be to the individuals? So we know... You know, from advisors, it, it's not about necessarily what solution. It's it's all the bits around about. It's all the tax planning. It's about when, when to take the income, what what's the right time to take the income. Things like annual loans, lifetime loans. It just doesn't feel any way within a, any sort of robot system that you can look at that kind of level. You can maybe talk to people about, you know, do you want certainty? Do you want flexibility? Therefore, you know, is annuity right for you as drawdown or as some sort of combination or whatever it happens to be. So you might be able to point them at certain 
ways of taking an income, but you certainly can't get anywhere near that kind of whole tax planning or certainly nothing we've seen would suggest that. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to see how the workplace schemes come to it. I mean, you know, a number of them are kind of not-for-profit. They've definitely got their, their members at the heart of what they're trying to deliver. How they tackle their members as they reach retirement and more and more of their members are, how, how they solve that particular solution would be quite interesting to watch because they'll have to use technology. I mean, the sheer numbers in some of the schemes, you couldn't service face-to-face and you'd probably be challenged over the telephone. I'd be interested to see how that market develops and, and sits alongside what the, you know, the advice markets we see it today looks like. Yeah, do you think we're going to see any increase in appetite for buying annuities? Interest rates are creeping up now. But is that, is that back to part of the advice process that people just won't buy an annuity in their 60s? But they might buy one in their late 70s. But that probably, again, requires some kind of a prompt to get them to do that. Uh, so interesting your thoughts around yeah. all of that. Yeah, so, so certainly, you know, we're, we're never going to go back to the, the situation where lots and lots of annuities were bought at 60 or 65. You know, there's decent numbers bought, but but in, in the main, those are for people who need absolute certainty of income. We know most people want the flexibility of drawdown, but but using annuities and drawdown in a slightly different way still potentially makes sense, at least to me. And and that could be that you use an annuity to guarantee a certain level of income and, and you have flexibility above that, so kind of using them in tandem. Or, or as you were kind of suggesting, as, as you use them maybe consecutively. So in your 60s, you have drawdown. When you need all that flexibility, you can take tax-free cash, you can move income up and down. But maybe, you know, when you get to 75, maybe that's the time that you want to maybe de-risk and actually, you know what, I'm, I'm having this money going up and down every day. I just want money going into my bank account potentially. And buying annuities in phases is something that's never really happened in the UK. It's, it's generally always been kind of an outright purchase. And that doesn't necessarily make sense when you think about it, you know. So if we're, if we're moving someone from equities to cash, we would do it gradually. We wouldn't do it mm. all at one time. The absolute same logic would apply to annuities as, as can you do it in, in phases and gradually move and maybe buy a bit at 70 and a bit at 75 and a bit at 80. And that's something the market's not really, you know, because at the moment that would require quite a bit of advice. And the annuity market at the moment is is dominated by the non-advised channels, isn't it? So you're, you're going to need a, a shift into who's actually really considering annuity purchase and, and not a single point in time. So that would be really interesting to see that come but, through. But, but again, doing it with some sort of prompts, that, that doesn't feel impossible to do. I mean, generally, just on general annuities, Tom, so, so rates have gone up 20% this year probably about 35% up on beginning of last year. So quite significant movements up, but probably still, you know, for most advisors, they're certainly not on the radar for most clients, are they? But, you know, if rates keep going up, and, and, you know, we're talking about base rates going up, you know, probably, you know, potentially another couple of percent from where they are at the moment. So, you know, so another one and a half percent, two percent up on, on base rates again, that, that is likely to push annuity rates up. We've got the Solvency 2 consultation going on at the moment, which is which is about reforms to risk margins and matching adjustments and, and horribly complex topics like that. But again, that might free up a bit of capital and things like that, and, and that might help annuity providers produce better value for customers. Yeah, interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing 
any kind of sort of numbers emerging on, on, on solvency too and what the impact of that's going to be and, and whether it will impact rates significantly. Yeah. I mean, all the other factors you talked about, the rising interest rates are definitely in play. And I remember some research from Hargreaves Lansdowne that, and this is going back sort of three or four years, so the environment was different then, but but that sort of suggested at the time, may have been five years, that, but at the time, once annuity rates got up to around sort of seven and a half percent for a level annuity, people sort of started to prick up a bit of interest. And, you know, if you've got someone in their late 70s with current interest rates, you you know, you're, you're probably around that kind of territory now. Yeah, well, well certainly. Uh, yeah, to be honest, we, we did some figures the other day, and I think certainly even by 75, we're well above 7.5. I think it was yeah. getting close to 8% at yeah. 75. So, yeah, so, so when you get 70, 75, and, and you can lock in a rate of 7.5% or something like that, and people like that age might be more likely to have some sort of health conditions or, or whatever it are, even if it's moderate health mm. conditions. So, so, so getting a rate of seven and a half, eight percent at 75, currently in a 20 year guarantee to, to give death benefits to, to family should you die. Uh, and that starts to look at a, a much more enticing proposition than maybe how annuities have been used in the past. Good stuff. Andy, Paul, thanks very much for talking to me today. It's been really interesting. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.